Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter 14. Light Station was a well-armed military high dock circling a red giant of no particular note. Its orbit was fairly close to the jump point, only a few hours into the gravity well, just enough to keep ships from popping in, blowing them up, and popping out again, a valid and widely adopted practice that would likely get reevaluated soon enough. Team was waiting as expected and they had many, many tons of warships and warboats standing by. There was even a Linebreaker-class security cruiser present. Not Liquidator, but its sister ship, Wildcard. This vessel had seen picket duty of its own over in 21611B before everything had gone to crap, so its command staff was fully aware of the stakes involved. The Ain Fleet Carrier Detachment wasn't entirely outclassed by Wildcard and its posse. I mean, city-state was an impressive beast too, but it was certainly outnumbered and outgunned. I wasn't told where the tiny recovered ship was physically being held, but the fact that an Alliance ship of the line had been dispatched in this manner implied it was actually aboard the carrier at that moment, just like me. If true, city-state wasn't here to impress a foreign nation with a show of force, it was here to safely return a foreign nation's lost toy. As if to emphasize my conclusion, team immediately scrambled a contingent of guards and technical support staff from Wildcard, and they were admitted to the huge Alliance vessel with both speed and courtesy. Because it had an external feed and was one of the few places I was authorized to go on my own, I sat in the same borrowed meeting room where I'd wasted time with Amaros and the rest. For hours, I watched the wall screen. I even took my meals there. Eventually, a cargo boat of some moderate size exited city-state under a mixed fighter escort from both nations. The hauler cruised over to Wildcard stayed for only an hour or so and then returned, notably without the escort this time. So Ain gave it back, and right away. That didn't track at first. Why wouldn't Fleet keep it? Weren't they curious? Weren't they worried? Granted, Ain's military commanders might not have had any idea what they'd gotten their hands on, 
but that seemed remarkably thick-headed, which was not the way I remembered them. Even if that was the case and this Admiral Dussain was a dunce, they still had my testimony under oath of what had happened, or those things I could freely speak about, completed the previous day while still in transit, thank you very much. Plus, they had the early feedback of the four techs who'd gone inside. Those clowns could have been more stealthy with it, maybe, but I've no doubt they reported what they found. All this should have been enough for Fleet to at least take a closer look at what had popped into the universe on their side of the border. Yet here they were, giving the ship back without hesitation, like it was completely unremarkable. Like it hadn't surprised them at all. Let me repeat that, said Sidney Bailey, vice president in charge of special assignment 2281L, codenamed the Jaybird Incident. That was her actual title, by the way. She spoke to us all firmly, using her chin for emphasis, sticking it outward like a jabbing finger whenever she had a point to make. Interstar sees this as priority one. We need to know who these people were, where they were from, and why we didn't see them coming from the start. Answers, people, and quickly! Interstar was a colony station here in corporate territory that had started life as a tiny waypoint between star systems. Through a convoluted series of legal and financial dramas, it became the official headquarters for the Montero Transstellar Commercial Federation, essentially a collective ruling body of all the major corporations allied and active in this area of space. In theory, the Montero Group, as it was also known, was something like a democratic government, with voting partners and advising partners and a whole lot of other partners who had to be seen and heard whenever there was a common interest or problem to deal with. In reality, it was an old boys club, with just a handful of companies dominating the rest. It had been described to me once as acting like a textbook commercial oligarchy. Whatever that was, it didn't soften the deja vu of having nearly the same pep talk by two different women of roughly equal rank in two different companies in two different parts of space within the exact same mission. Background checks, NDAs, stern warnings about the required secrecy and consequences for breaking it. After sneaking aboard and just walking out into the street like I belonged there... Dieter did the same, moving off in the opposite direction with a simple nod. I checked a local directory and reported to a perky HR coordinator in an overly bright office on a busy thoroughfare. She took my name and did an ident scan, then sent a huge employee package to my inbox. It included all the rules, regulations, rights, and responsibilities of being a valuable Montero employee. After this came hours and endless hours of orientation and paperwork, as well as the induced hospitality of temporary housing in a cramped one-room flat, monitored and guarded all shift, every shift. Until all these formalities were fully observed, I was told, I was an unknown element upon a secure facility, and I would be treated as such. 
It all must have gone well because I was eventually sent to the perky lady again, who, in turn, directed me to report to something called administrative security in a nondescript building down the road a piece. As I sat in the briefing room now, listening to my new big boss, I found myself wishing for some of Siddle's subtle irony along with someone to appreciate it. The most I could usually conjure was sarcasm, and there was no one here now that I knew. V.P. Bailey, as she preferred to be called, yammered inanely and aggressively about how we'd have to get results and how badly upper management and corporate security wanted answers and how this and that was important to this person and that person, and it just went on and on. It was almost comical how she kept us sitting there doing nothing while berating us in advance for getting nothing done. I say almost. Really, not at all. Mercifully, this pointless tirade only lasted three or four months, and after a brief catered lunch, those of us in the group were finally able to leave the woman behind and go off to our forensic data laboratory. And it really was one. A wide room filled with dedicated research and simulation workstations that looked state-of-the-art. I was excited when I walked in, and, to be honest, immediately frightened that I'd be seen as a fraud right off. I would have six co-workers, three of whom were career corporate types. One of these was our admin coordinator, or AC. His name was CPM07 Brandon Erzga, and was an admin official who had transferred laterally at some point from the military. The other two were current officers in Corporate Security Space Branch, both qualified gunners off Liquidator, and both CPM-05s. Rank was everything to the handshake. In a nation largely free of many of the more pernicious class issues other societies were forced to deal with, Corporate Space had created one all its own. Every citizen had rank from the moment they were born. Rank described hierarchy, but also profession to an extent. CPM designated someone in corporate management. CPW referred to a corporate worker, usually a tradesperson, laborer, or office drone. CPT was for engineers, technicians, and their support staff. CPS referred to a member of corporate security, either the air, space, planetary, or oceanic branches, and there were many others. After one's rank was a number, anything from zero to ten. The higher your number, the higher your rank. By law, rank designations were all equal. CPMs and CPWs, for example, with the same rank number, were on the same social level. Lateral movements from one letter designation to another, implying a change of career, were fairly common, and a person was only limited by their ambition. It was simple in theory. People being what they were, the reality was not. Designating itself a constitutional meritocracy, the Montero Transstellar Commercial Federation rewarded its citizens equal to their value. People who did fine work made fine money. People who didn't were coached and trained, or retrained in something new until they finally found their niche in life. The problem here 
was in defining what the word value really meant. Just like everywhere else, charismatic people, whatever the profession, tended to be overvenerated, often precipitously so. Sure, they might suck at their jobs, but darned if they didn't look good doing it. And the opposite was also true. Someone with, say, Stina's personality might never rise very far, no matter their skill. This tendency also created jobs for life for people who, while excellent at the work itself, were largely unpleasant or difficult to deal with. So long as they continued to get the job done, it was pretty hard to extract them, no matter how miserable everyone else was. So it was not a perfect system, but it was better than many, and the people, by and large, seemed satisfied. Certainly no one in this group was complaining. The rest of us were technically independent contractors. From a couple of civilian support vessels that had jumped in-system as part of an admin task force attached to the team subfleet, we had two spacecraft engineers unassociated with the Free Jump project. They were obviously sweating hard to play catch-up with tech designs they'd only just received clearance to study. The mystery man of the group, named Quan T., reminded me so much of Siddle I almost called him that at one point on the first day. His casual slouching frame, dark shades, and charcoal suit were simply too precious. T was an acknowledged expert in stealth space designs, with a background that had been cleared from above even VP Bailey's head. And then there was Ejok DeSantos, who, surprise, surprise, no one seemed to know what to do with. The other gunners had been hand-picked by their superior officers for this assignment, and alternately looked at me like I was the poor relation of the family, or a strange extra-dimensional object that defied the human intellect to fully comprehend. I just smiled and nodded. Heck, it had been all I could do to keep from zoning out entirely while our fearless VP had been trying to inspire us with her encouraging words. Okay, let's hit the deck running. CPM-07 Erska said, bringing up a hollow display that I thought had appeared directly in front of me, but had, in fact, appeared in front of all of us simultaneously, the lab's tracking sensors and variegated display dropping a smaller, viewpoint-specific version of the image before each member. I held off on sounding surprised or impressed, but this was top-shelf equipment, an interface design I'd only seen on tech news vids. It showed a perfect, miniature version of Jaybird. We are going to follow the initial flight from dock to destruction. I want to watch it straight through as a group. Then we'll begin the incident breakdown. There were chairs and tall stools, and we each found one where we could view the playback in relative comfort, our hollow pop-ups moving and tracking with our faces as we jockeyed seats. The feed was a multi-channel one, allowing our AC to switch between the data broadcast from the doomed ship and various simultaneous external sensor captures from the drone swarm that he ran concurrently. The point of view was certainly different, but the events themselves were nothing new to me. I was looking forward to seeing details of the jump process, 
but this feed carried no information on the actual technology or its activation since the individual members of the group had stratified clearances. Those two engineers and the seven, rank shorthand, were the only ones allowed access to factual information on the tech, and then only insofar as management felt it pertained to the investigation. It would be the AC's call as to what aspects of this mountain of detail were need-to-know for the rest of us. So, while the playback was mostly a refresher, at least it put names to the crew. A crew I had killed. CPT-06 Benjamin Ewell, pilot of the ship, and a senior engineer on the project. And CPM-05 Denise Cryer, co-pilot. Self-defense or no, I had to sit through hours of imagery, occasionally face to virtual face with ghosts who had every reason to haunt me. It was not comfortable. I pressed the point. But I didn't break down or shed tears. It had been a frantic kill, but a morally clean one. They had jumped us. Twice. They had made to fire. Had in fact, fired. I simply drew first. This was gunnery. Angles and vectors, power allocation and system preps, legality and morality, life and death. My life, their deaths. I didn't like watching my handiwork in such a clinical way, having such emotional knowledge of at least half the battle, while burdened with the absolute necessity to quash it. No, that part wasn't fun. That part wasn't a normal element of the gunner's work. But I'd signed up for something no one was ready for, least of all me, and there wasn't a single e-jock. The Seven had been addressing me, and I hadn't been listening. Sorry, I was... I was wrapped up in this. I wanted your opinion on the weaponry control systems. Don't get so focused that you lose touch with reality, and I'm not in the habit of repeating myself. And I'm not in the habit of being spoken to like that. I'm a civilian contractor, Seven, and a foreign national. So you can talk to me like a man, or you can talk to an empty stool. It's your call. I just stared at him through the phantom free jump that hovered in front of my face with its phantom crew. He didn't seem angry, really, but flummoxed, and at a genuine loss for words. Finally, he stopped the playback and looked around at the others. Give us the room. Uh, can I have a few minutes with Ejok, please, everyone? There was a lot of wide-eyed wondering in the faces that got up and walked out, but they did it quickly and without a word. This is a new record for me, I said to him after the door slid closed. How's that? Getting fired within an hour? I've lost jobs quickly before, but this is an all-time high. Or low. He moved over to the side to get some coffee, offering me one. It was pretty good stuff. Just powdered, but nice when hot. I accepted a cup, and we sat down to have that talk I knew so well. Or thought I did. I'm sorry, he started off, sitting across from me and looking contrite. I'm a career man, and I'm used to things happening in a certain way. But I recognize that it's not the only way, so I'm not firing you. 
It wouldn't help Specsign, and it wouldn't help me. If I lost a member of the group this fast, I'd probably be next. Specsign? Special Assignment 2281L. Our mission here. Slang. Well, so long as it's not spec-ass, I said with a grin. Oh, that's an old joke, he responded, matching my tone and smile. It's what we call the ones that suck. I really don't think this job has to, and you can't deny the importance. I absolutely don't. Look, Seven, I'll make you a deal. I promise not to be so touchy all the time if you promise not to be quite so spit and polish. We're both professionals in our own way. Specsign needs those different perspectives. I'm sure we can meet in the middle somewhere. I'd like that, Ejok. We shook on it. He called the others back in, and we all sat down to pick up the thread of the earlier conversation. The Seven repeated his question, despite his habits, and I launched in on the reasons for my general detestation of so-called all-in-one gunnery interfaces, such as the one that had been installed on Jaybird. Frankly, as I spoke, I couldn't help but feel a thread of anger. I buried it under droll anecdotes and some hard data to support my point of contention, but still it was there, whispering, nagging. CPM07 Brandon Erzga was a man who could keep his eye on the prize but knew when and how to make amends. That placed him on a very short list of quality bosses I'd ever worked under. The fact that I was deceiving this group, his group, well, that put me on a list too. And not one I liked. My assigned quarters were in a quiet section of Mylag Vernier. I rated better than I expected, I guess, because I only had one roommate. They even gave me a choice between this arrangement or a small but private sleep cube. The cube stacks were over near the main drag, though, and it seemed kind of noisy there. They had me paired up with a guy on the cleaning crew, one CPW-03 Barney Carsons. He was a big fellow with dark skin and a deep, smooth voice that could have melted hearts by the millions had he been a vidstar. He'd been told that before, apparently, and seemed to take no stock in it. Barney had had a previous roommate who'd transferred out a few weeks before, but he wasn't resentful about losing his exclusive on the place. If anything, he appeared happy to have the company. His schedule was congruous with mine, so we decided to go out for a beer that first night, just to get acquainted. Over near Spoke Plaza, a large open mall centered around the bank of personnel and cargo elevators in one of the six radiating pillars of the station, was a tavern called Samples. Like many of the small businesses aboard, it was a privately owned concern with an operating license issued by and a lease with Mylag Vernier Incorporated, the property management company that ran the day-to-day -day operations of the station for the Montero Corporation. In fact, Montero was the actual owner of the management firm, 
while it also owned the station, so it was really just collecting rent to pay itself. That seemed like an added layer of complication and expense, but I didn't doubt they somehow found it profitable. The proprietor and employees of Samples would have had to pass security background checks to be out here, but other than that, they were all simply civilian entrepreneurs and workers living in a small remote town where some research was being carried out. The pub was very relaxed in style, its decor tending toward faux wood grains and overstuffed chairs and couches. The tables were big, and there was even a back room, closed off at the moment, that was used for parties and special events. They had two import beers on tap and two others apparently brewed here on station. There were also a fair range of spirits, wines, meads, and ciders. Not bad for deep space. A tall waitress with curly hair took our orders and then left us alone. So, special assignment, huh? That'll look good on your resume. Can't talk about it, though, right? No, I can't, sorry. Tell me about your job. Ah, he just waved it off. Cleaning floors, trash collection, the usual. You into sports at all, Ejok? Well, I guess it depends on your definition. There are these professional gunnery competitions back in the Alliance that I follow pretty closely. Big money in them, actually. Yeah? I never heard of that. I'll have to check it out. I like smackball myself. Single or group play? Group competitive. We have an amateur league here on station. I'm captain of our team, the Vernier Vipers. But I'll watch any kind of smackball. I caught the internationals last year on vid, I told him. Those guildies were on fire. Oh, they're unbeatable this year, too. I'm a Storin' Eagles fan over here in corporate. We've got no chance this season. Is the manager, that chump Jane Fountas, she couldn't organize a one-person sit-in. So we talked and drank. In the end, we both agreed that we'd get along just fine, especially whenever Smackball was the topic. I thought it a pretty stupid game, to be honest, but it seemed politic to listen to his obsessive chatter and agree to watch his team play sometime over at the station rec center. Sports talk aside, as a roommate, Barney was a gem. Quiet when it mattered, clean, respectful. He seemed a creature of habit and had teammates who, I guess, were pretty similar. He insisted that I meet them, so I did, after work a couple days later. We went back to Samples, which was their hangout spot. One by one, over the course of a couple hours, the other members of the Vernier Vipers arrived and joined us. We had to put two tables together to seat them all. A proper smackball team has at least ten players. The Vipers, being in the amateur leagues, only had seven, and was forced to juggle them about in both practice sessions and actual games in order to cover all positions. In addition to Barney, there was a Locky Cobb, a thin, energetic woman in her mid-thirties. Tip Bin Horo, a laconic fellow in his twenties who told the group several funny anecdotes. Lili Malorian Yanowski, a loud woman in her early forties who flashed me a big smile that somehow didn't reach her eyes. Fanny Botel, 
a small, baby-faced woman that looked to be in her teens, though I learned later was actually 34. Gussert Norris, a tall, lean man with graying hair, probably in his mid-fifties, but in excellent shape. And Paul Frew, a stocky guy in his thirties, who spent much of the night complaining about his wife. Jumbled, disconnected, and numbing as the collective conversation could be, I nonetheless had a good time. The pub setting allowed for a much easier approach to these people and their alien lives than I might otherwise have found on my own. There was laughter and stories, crabbing and camaraderie. They were a mixed bag, to be sure, and I didn't really retain their names or details that night. It took a while. But I talked with them, drank and laughed a bit too, and by the time we were all leaving... Well, I was just one of the gang. It was the first crew meeting in a week, and though virtual, still seemed risky as heck. Both John and Stina assured me that no one could listen in, nor could the sources or destinations of the conversations be tracked. In fact, they said, the entire thing was being wiped from the Mylag Vernier com record even as it was being recorded. All calls through the station's switchboard were recorded and archived as a matter of course, and could be called up by Stasek at any time. The people of this station, including myself, had all signed confidentiality waivers when they came aboard, so there wasn't even the illusion of privacy. SS1 and SS2 had had the time to get really comfortable poking around in the cracked systems. It seemed unlikely this kind of thing could go on for much longer, but they were the specialists and they were confident. That was enough for Chris and Mavis, so it would have to be enough for me. Dieter was actually back aboard the ship right then. He'd needed some cold status info from the Star Jump system for the sake of the new propagators in the fabrication queue. If I get those numbers wrong, he'd explained when we met up outside the closet, the new parts might be unstable. Despite the term, there's a drift factor to jump equipment locked in a steady state. If we'd gotten the parts in a timely fashion, it wouldn't have mattered, but those variables might have changed by now. I could have Mavis get them, maybe, but I, I want to be sure it's right. So I acted as lookout, just like usual, and his exit from the station went smoothly. After that, I decided to take a walk through the companionways, keeping my comments generalized and generic so that hypothetical eavesdroppers would be unimpressed. It gave him time to get up there and settled. I stopped off at a little coffee kiosk at the corner of Centerline Avenue and a small alleyway. It was the one whose ads I'd seen before coming aboard. It had a real human behind the counter, something of a rarity in the modern coffee world. I got a double-shot espresso, and it was very good. I made a mental note to hit the place again on my way to work and grab joes and pastries for the group. That always won points. How are things in maintenance? I put to the engineer, this being the first chance we'd had to chit-chat. 
Dieter, like the others, now hovered in my eye view as a disembodied head, the blurry background behind him implying he was sitting in engineering. He nodded easily, looking half out of it, like always. It's boring work, but everyone's nice. My supervisor's a real hoot. Keeps me laughing all day. And the rest of you guys are holding up? I put to them. We heard that mystery signal again, John put in, bringing up a waveform that I was apparently supposed to recognize by sight, and pointedly not answering my question. You remember the one that was autologged during our trip in? I can now state for certain that it originates on the station. I wasn't expecting it, so I didn't get a closer fix. Maybe next time, though. It's kind of cool because it's not a cipher I've seen before. I don't even recognize the code family. It's papal, I told you, Stina injected, sounding irritated. Or not. And I told you there isn't anything close to it in the database. Well, I saw something like it once before, and it was from church space. Yeah, John replied, sidestepping the argument and looking back to me with a certain measure of misery. It's just one big party up here. Cabin fever, Chris affirmed. Mavis? I asked, looking at her, because she had frowned then. I just want to get out of this star system. Dita, how's it looking? He shook his head. Until it starts getting regular supply runs again, and specifically iridium raws, General Store won't be able to refabricate those propagators for us. We're in the queue, but nothing is being processed. I have the updated information now, and I'll amend my order, but if we're really stuck here, I'll keep having to do it again and again. That was sobering and depressing. Picking them up once they are ready will require some thought, too, he continued. I had to replace an air circulator over by the entrance tube to the ship yesterday. They finally have that automated security in place, but Stasek hasn't pulled back the uniformed officers. It's tight as a drum. Oh, and word is that a new security assessment might be on the way, possibly Alpha Grade, which will cover the entire station. Chris looked surprised at that, as did the rest of us. You're just full of good news today. We haven't read anything about that from Intercepted Communications. Well, nobody said anything overt, but we were told to have all access codes, pass keys, and entrance logs for every system under our care ready for review. I think it's meant to be a surprise inspection when it comes. Does that mean trouble for you, Weejug? RML asked. No, it shouldn't. Brand will handle them. Brand? Our admin coordinator. He's keen on results and has enough pull, I think, to keep the hounds at bay. Anything to report about that? The investigation? Well, I like the lab equipment, I replied evasively, because I knew what he really meant. Don't be cute. Come on. Nope. Don't ask. Nothing's changed. Nothing? What do you mean nothing's changed? RML looked a lot like he always did whenever he got mad at me. The mere fact that it was familiar made it no less upsetting. I'm bored too, Stina commented then, in reference to... 
I don't know what. The only reason I'm out here is to help with our little problem, if I can, I countered, keeping my voice light and smiling at some lady passing by, who I had seen at the pub once or twice but hadn't actually met. I'm not here to do anything else. Sorry. I can't believe this. Captain, do you believe this? It's the chance of a lifetime. It's a career maker for all of us, and he refuses to take it. That's his right, she pronounced, though her tone seemed to indicate she'd take a different tack herself, if in my shoes. He's working without a cover identity, remember? When all this is done, he'll have to live with the consequences. Thank you, I injected, but Chris just cursed and broke his connection. He must have immediately started stalking around the table because he suddenly thrust his face into Stina's pickup. This isn't just about you, Eat Jock. It affects us all. Hey, Stina complained and pushed him away. I looked at the captain and tried to smile. I even laughed nervously a bit. <laughs> I don't mean to cause problems. You never do, she replied, still frowning. You're not going native, are you? Should I be worried? I dropped my attempt at mirth then and looked her in the virtual, mechanical eye. No, you should not. I held her gaze for a long moment, giving it a serious amount of my focus as I walked, so much so that I almost bumped into a couple in front of me. Mavis was returning the look with at least as much attention until finally nodding. What I do want, though, I stated, deliberately breaking the unpleasant spell and glancing over at the engineer's face, is to find some way to openly meet with Dieter here on station. If we strike up a public friendship, we can get together later on, if or when we need to, without rousing suspicion. That was an idea everyone still on the chat seemed to like, but... His schedule was not the same as mine, and the maintenance post he worked out of was on the other side of the station, both from my quarters and my job. He stated that he would be coming back aboard right away, just as soon as he had submitted the updated information. So I turned a corner and headed back toward the closet. We kept talking, and after a silly amount of schedule haggling, he finally agreed to pop into samples to grab a bite to eat before his next work shift later in the day. That would be after work for me. I wanted Barney and his gang to meet him too, so that everyone knew everyone, and no one would ever find it odd to ever see us together. Well, that's it then, the captain concluded. Time to step this up. We're on the losing side of the waiting game, people. We need to get out of here before we never do. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, 
at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.